What is up, guys? Welcome to episode 68 of the Triage Method podcast. I'm back in lovely overcast Ireland. Paddy, still in America. How are you this week, Paddy? I'm absolutely positively fantastic. Uh, we tried to record this the other day. Gary slept in, first of all. Disgusting. By three minutes. Disgusting, regardless. Uh, and then his internet was awful. So that's why today's podcast is a little bit later than usual. Um, hopefully, I'm going to get it up today. Uh, so it'll still be on the same day. Um, at least it's the same day for me. So that's all that matters, isn't it? Um, yeah. But yeah, so today's podcast, we are basically going to do a Q&A one because we've been getting a good few questions in. Um, and there's a few ones here that are good in terms of they allow us to cover a few, a few different variables, a few different things. But also, we really appreciate it when people actually submit questions because yep. it actually allows us to answer your questions, as crazy as that sounds. Um, but yeah, like obviously, we come up with topics, topics maybe we're thinking about, topics we maybe think or have been asked about in real person or in real life. Um, but it does always help us to come up with topics if you actually ask questions if you actually guide the process and actually you know tell us what you need help with you know because us just coming up with random topics yeah that obviously helps but maybe it's not the answer or it doesn't provide you with the answers to the questions you want answers to so there is a form in the description box um, if you want to submit your questions and i do suggest you do even if you think it is a a pretty stupid question or even if it's a very specific question you know it does allow us to talk to a broader audience answer a broader audience even if the question is specific because like as much as we all want to think we're unique snowflakes and whatever else like more often than not you're just not someone else is going to have the same issue someone else is going to have the same problem someone else is going to have the same circumstances everything um, and providing you with an answer thus provides them with an answer but anyway gary will we get cracking on with this q a yeah so so to give some context these questions are essentially a mix of those from our facebook community which we really recommend that you join that's the easiest way to have like comprehensive contact with us because we can actually answer questions in depth there we're hoping to kind of reduce the amount that we use instagram so our facebook community that's the place to be if you're not there get involved, that'll be linked in the description box below as well. So get on that. Um, so yeah, we, these questions are coming from you guys and we're gonna work through them one by one. And as Paddy said, if you have questions in the future, do submit them. So the first question was, is the chest press okay for building my chest? I prefer it to the bench press. Um, and this was actually from, from one of my clients who kind of asked this personally. So this is a question that I got um, via email. And the reason, the reason he essentially asked this is because I've actually been programming this for him and he's essentially found that he much prefers this exercise, gets a lot more out of it, feels like he can push himself a lot more versus the bench press. Um, and yeah, that was essentially his question. And I suppose like before we get into this, I think it's worth noting that the answer to this question can apply to a wide variety of exercises. It's not just about the chest press versus the bench press. It's more so kind of a a fundamental like conceptual understanding of exercise that's often missing. So, you know, one thing we always talk about, Paddy, is the idea that most people these days, 
in terms of getting their health and fitness education, they tend to get it from social media, whether that like that doesn't just mean Instagram, it can also be Facebook, it can even be YouTube. And you know, you can get valuable information on those platforms, but very often they're quite they're it's it's meant to give you sound bites. It's meant to give you things that are, you know, immediately implementable, that are, that seem like attractive, they're attractive ideas, but they're not often giving you like the fo- the foundational subjects that are important yeah, it's, for understanding. Yeah, it's superficial information. It's like yeah. this is the surface level thing. If you grasp this, you've grasped the concept, like you understand the, the basics in terms of, oh yeah, like this, these exercises work these muscles and you do these consistently in whatever rep range, you build muscle. You understand that. But you don't understand the the underlying concepts. You don't understand the kind of why behind that. You know, you, you maybe just understand the how, which in itself is helpful, but it kind of leads to, like you said, these sound bites. It's like, oh, do lunges for this, do squats for this. You know, you must bench press. And it's like, you can't argue from first principles for that statement. You know, I think that's kind of what's missing a lot of the time. But anyway, sorry for interrupting. Yeah, and, and like it, it goes for all exercises. And I suppose like one of the things that that we're that we're trying to do currently and in the future is trying to get to the point where we've laid out all the foundational stuff that people kind of need to know to understand exercise, but we're also giving you almost like the soundbite stuff in that like here's what a chest press looks like here's what a bench press looks like here's what a dumbbell bench press looks like etc like you can look at all those tools and appreciate them in a like in a non-judgmental way in that like you don't for someone to to put out in advice about exercise it doesn't have to be like this is the one best exercise because to be fair you can make a strong argument for lots of exercises being better than lots of other exercises you know there there is there is a spectrum there there is a hierarchy um, but that doesn't mean we have to ignore other exercises because of that but anyway to get to the, the the crux of this question so essentially like where we start off with this is is asking the question what is it exactly that leads to the chest muscles needing to work during a bench press or during any sort of horizontal pressing exercise and that is essentially it's easier for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, obviously, but that is essentially some sort of force that's acting on my arm to try and push me down. Okay. So there's some sort of force that's trying to push my shoulder joint into that extended position or horizontal extension, which can be at very varying degrees of horizontal or of abduction like that. So the arm moving up and down and essentially like that, that, that relates to, you know, whether you're, if your elbows are up really high, that you can still be challenged. If your elbows are down lower, you can still be challenged because there's, there's some way that that pec can pull on that shoulder joint and apply a force. So essentially what you've got is some sort of challenge on the shoulder joint that is trying to push against the, the, the path of motion that that pec, that chest muscle, can pull. Okay, so that's a really simple way of looking at it. If you want more detail on that, of course, go to our articles on anatomy and biomechanics and you'll get a better idea of what that stuff means technically. But that's essentially what we're looking for. We're looking for some sort of force that is opposing the movement of the shoulder the chest muscles will create. Okay, so when we're doing some sort of chest pressing or horizontal pressing movement, the fact that it's a barbell doesn't really matter all your chest muscles are, are essentially quote unquote sensing is the fact that they, that they're producing sufficient tension to move that shoulder joint. Okay. The fact that it's a barbell or a dumbbell or a chest press, it kind of doesn't really matter. 
But at the same time, it does matter because those different exercises have to have different qualities. So in this case, like, I think it's useful to at least try and explain why someone might feel that their chest is maybe being better stimulated on a chest press versus a bench press. So in this case, what could be going on is that, let's say, when someone uses the chest press, what they might be doing is potentially working through a smaller range of motion. Like that, that can happen sometimes. Like if sometimes when, when some people have, let's say, really long arms, a really kind of shallow rib cage, depending on where they're gripping the bar, they might find that when they come down to that real low bottom position, that it's a bit uncomfortable in their shoulders and they don't feel like their chest is being stimulated as best as possible. So that could be one reason. It could be a, a dif difference in the range of motion that the person's using. Another difference could be the grip width or the angle of the grip that someone's using. So, you know, you could, you could be, have maybe a narrow, narrower grip on the chest press. You could have a, a converging chest press, which means that it's wider at the bottom and it's narrower at the top. And what that would then mean is that once, when you're moving from narrower to wider, it means that your shoulder is actually working through a larger range of motion. And that's the really interesting thing about discussions of range of motion a lot of the time. You know, people talk about full range of motion, but if you look at the quote unquote full range of motion of a a normal bench press, you're actually, you're actually still not even getting to that point where your chest muscles would actually be shortened, you know? And that doesn't mean you have to, but I mean, it just means that you have to look at range of motion at both ends of the exercise. So you could have someone that's using less of the end range of the chest and more of the short range of the chest during a chest press when it's converging. So again, that's another qualitative and quantitative difference of that exercise. So yeah, it changes the experience. And then the final one, go ahead. And on that, like this is again, if you can understand what Gary just said there, like you actually will understand a lot of exercise selection because this whole concept of range of motion is obviously important. This is why people talk about it, but it is one of these kind of bastardized concepts, right? And this is, if you understand that, you'll understand why talking about this stuff in terms of like, oh, should I do a bench press or a chest press? It kind of becomes irrelevant because what you start thinking of is, like, what am I actually trying to achieve for this muscle or in this muscle, I suppose, for this exercise? Um, and like, you could see something like this converging chest press that perfectly fits your specific mechanics, you know, that, 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 and it could actually take you through almost full range of motion of your chest fibers um, and also be an appropriate load depending on the, the way the cables are set up or whatever the fuck, the way the machine, the cam is set up. It could be an appropriate load throughout every single point of that range of motion. The discussion between is that a better exercise than the bench press is obviously going to be hugely different. And you'll see this, which is really quite interesting in people that do say like, oh, you must bench press. They'll then say like, oh, well, I use like dumbbell bench press as well because I get a better contraction of the chest. And you're like, okay, well, let's actually discuss that. If you're, if you're then going to make this argument that the bench press is the best mass builder and then say it's because there's a range of motion or because it's a compound exercise, and then you are like, oh, well, I actually need these other exercises to ensure that my chest is appropriately stimulated. You know, they might go like, oh, you bench press, then you dumbbell bench press, and then you do some sort of fly because that gets all of the chest fibers activated or something i don't know you know it's like if you like think about what you're actually trying to achieve like would it be better and this also bleeds into the other arguments around like volume and stuff you know like the, the discussion of like an exercise or an, a training program that has adequate volume 
for each given portion of the muscle versus like say you did that over nine sets you did okay we're going to get the chest into like we'll say a mid-range position and we're going to get the chest into a kind of fully contracted position and then we're going to get the chest into a stretch position and you use three different exercises for that for example so we'll say you use the bench press you use a, a cable fly you know maybe even cuffed at the elbows you, you and then you use some sort of like dumbbell fly right and you're like yeah i brought the chest through all of its ranges of motion and really adequately stimulated like you say you took nine sets to do that what if you did that in three sets with a chest press machine that was perfectly designed and it stimulated all of those ranges of motion in three sets that's obviously a completely different discussion which obviously gets lost in the overall grand scheme of things when you're discussing all this stuff you know so if you can kind of understand what gary was just saying there and really let that kind of permeate and percolate in your mind you will understand a lot about training as a whole yeah because like like you're saying it's just not as black and white as people kind of like to make out because everyone talks about like the overall quantification essentially of the stimulus and that like we're trying to quantify exactly what the training stimulus is but very often it's it's very macro in that like we're talking about volume like all right how many sets did you do but very often like the the micro is totally ignored and obviously like your 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 goal at the start should be to maximize the micro because you want to get as much out of like, each repetition and each set as possible before you worry about how much how many sets you do like like that's kind of common sense in any area of life and that like you're going to study for eight hours you'd want to make sure you could do like one good hour first before you did eight and then you want to see how, how the quality changed as you add more hours because like it's important stuff so that's important to keep into the discussion when it comes to all training principles but to get back to the question the final thing that essentially could be changing here and you mentioned it um as it relates to a chest press versus a bench press is that the the way in which that resistance is applied throughout the range of motion could just be different okay so generally what you'll find in in lots of chest press machines is that like well-designed ones, it might be a li- there'll be a little bit of a drop-off at the end as you get into that position where you're maybe not quite as strong, and then at the top it'll start to increase. Okay, so the resistance will increase a little bit, and generally that tends to come with a stronger sensation of chest contraction because it, in the top range when you're shortened, and also because you're able to keep a bit more control throughout the range of motion. So overall, there can be a number of different reasons why someone would experience you know, a different sensation or a different feeling or, or feel like they're getting stronger more in a chest press. And essentially what we're saying is that like all of these exercises work and that if you feel like a chest press is better for you, by all means, go ahead and use it. The same goes for a leg press or a hack squat um, or a, a seated roll machine. You know, people, people often just assume that there has to be something inherent to barbells or dumbbells that make them more anabolic. <laughs> Whereas it's far more likely that it's because of accessibility. Most trainees tend to use them because they're always accessible and also kind of path dependence. And when I say path dependence, I mean that something that has, all, that has been done in the past is far more likely to be done currently. Okay? So if, everyone, if all the greatest lifters over time, especially when there was less machines, have used barbells and dumbbells, especially when they're related to different sports like weightlifting and powerlifting, we should expect uh, by default that most of the biggest and strongest guys would use free weights but that, but the problem is that that association is often made out to be causal by most people who say, "Oh, well, look at all the great squatters; they have big legs." It's like, like that's that again is like surface level knowledge or discussion, like like you mentioned at the start. So yeah, 
It's also, you... also not true at all. <laughs> so, like it's it's a it's a false it's a false statement. Like there's loads of squatters that have shit legs. Like actually like shit, like skinny legs. Like you. Like me. Um, <laughs> but like proper, like like for me, a back squat, it is a back exercise. Like all <laughs> is my erectors and my glutes. You know? And that's that's a high bar squat. You know? I'm I'm pretty good at it, you know. Um but you also see people who are actually like powerlifters and just they have shit quads. You know, like you look at any of the Louis Simmons guys, you know, like obviously some of them have fucking juicy as fuck quads, but they squat in a really like powerlifting manner and they literally just sit back and they're like, oh, quads are for bodybuilders. They're for pussies, you know, (laughs) they're like, oh, fuck off with that shit. So if you say like, oh, fucking squats are a great mass builder for the quads. It's like, well, like, first of all, we have to discuss what type of squat we're doing. Second of all, we have to discuss like your actual individual mechanics and then we have to discuss the fact that training stimuluses, stimuli are not the same for everyone, you know? So the, the, the statement itself is just factually incorrect. And yeah. it's across time, like you look at like any of those people that used to do that, what's that, Steinburn squat? I can't remember. You know where they're like literally put the barbell on its side and then it comes down. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you look at all those squatters, like some of the best ones, like when they, that's how you originally started squatting, like they didn't used to have racks, you know? Um, and you look at some of those squatters, some of the best ones have literally the skinniest legs I've ever seen in my life. They look like marathon runners, you know? So it's like, okay, well, maybe there's something to it. You see people as well being like, oh, deadlifts are great mass builders. And you see people pulling like three, 400 kilos and they're skinny as fuck. You know, so it's like this, this, there's like, there's no, the, the statements people make about these things are easily proven wrong, you know? So, and then, but then it's actually quite funny because people always then make the thing be like, oh, well, those are outliers. And it's like, uh, how can you say that? And then say the exact opposite when it's your state or like not agree with that same statement when it's your statement. If you go, oh, all the best squatters have juicy legs. And it's like, okay, well, here's people that don't. Oh, they're all outliers. And you're like, well, you're, all of your people that are squatting with juicy legs are all outliers because the vast majority of people don't get squat- juicy legs from squatting and also don't squat, you know? So it's like this, this whole thought process is easily taken apart. Yeah, but the, the problem is that like, it's so hard to have these discussions without, without the listeners, people listening to podcasts. Like I know people that listen to our podcast wouldn't do this, but most people are like, they want to put you in a camp once you start making these points. And someone made this argument with me before where I was talking about like the benefits of using machines and how in some cases like, they're, they can be better than free weights. And then someone said that um, this goes against all, everything, your, all your advice because you say that like barbell hip thrusts are better for building glutes than uh, glute kickback. Uh, when you're giving advice to females, I'm like, like how does this like you're just you're just taking one point and taking it totally out of context like this doesn't mean that we are anti-barbells like most of my training most of the time is barbell related you know same with yours like you love barbell lifts you love squatting and 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 we love these exercises but so it doesn't just mean that we are the machine guys like all i care about are is is how how we apply force to people and how we how we modify that so people get results that's all that matters like we don't have Camps. It's the same with diet, though. Like, I mean, 
I, I read lots of posts from people who are very pro, like uh, the consumption of, of animal-based foods. And I'm like, oh yeah, savage points. And then I follow some other people who are like big into like plant-based diets and they make some solid points. And I'm like, yeah, good stuff, you know, because you can find good information on both sides of, of the aisle. It's just when you go to the extremes, the things get, I was going to say problematic there, cheapers. <laughs> that things, that problems start to present themselves. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, you, you, can, you can use machines and you can use barbells, believe it or not, and say that they're both useful. And you can also eat plenty of meat and eggs and you can eat plenty of mixed salads and also, you know, just be like, I like both. You won't, make, you won't have to be part of the cult, but that's okay. But anyway, the next question was, should I increase wait, 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 carbs? Wait, wait, finish that question, right? So plus <laughs> all of that stuff as well with the whether you should choose a bench press or whether you should choose a chest press machine, you also have to consider what is the actual goal because mm. if you are a power lifter, yeah. <laughs> like obviously you're going to have to use the bench press, you know? Yes. That doesn't mean that you always have to use it. You know, maybe you're like, okay, my chest is actually weak. You know, I'm not getting an adequate stimulus from this. And I'm going to use a chest press to get more volume on my chest and actually build up the muscles there. So, you know, I can decrease the range of motion that I'm doing on the bench press because my chest is fucking thick and juicy. So I need to come down less, you know, but, uh, you, you need to actually discuss what you're actually trying to achieve. Cause obviously we were just talking about it there in terms of Gary's client, who's obviously trying to build muscle, maybe lose fat or whatever. But if their goal is to build muscle, like all we care about is the stimulus on that muscle. But if your goal is to compete in a sport that requires you to bench press, you're going to need to bench press. Like there's, it's pretty straightforward, you know, like the, there's, there's no real way around that. So yeah, you need to consider the individual. Themselves. And yep. Um, and then the next question onto the nutrition side of things, should I increase carbohydrates or fats when gaining, i.e. in a calorie surplus with the aim of building muscle and presumably not gaining that much fat? What do we think? Personally, looking at the scientific literature, whatever, carbohydrates are going to give you the best bang for your buck in terms of both performance and gaining potential. Okay? Fats, I just look at them as once you're kind of past that 0 0.6 to 1 gram per kilo, like once you're in that kind of range, you're pretty good to go. You know, like there are maybe potential benefits for the lower end or the higher end or even above that for certain populations. Um, but that's kind of a more specific circumstantial kind of discussion we'd need to have. You know, like if you're talking about someone that, I don't know, has certain genes that predispose them to not deal with fat as well. Obviously, they're going to have to consume lower fat intakes you know um so that, that would be more specific but in terms of just generalized advice i would definitely go for carbs if you think about it they also give the best bang for your buck in terms of an insulin response right which is obviously something that we are we actually want when we are trying to gain muscle you know like we're trying to grow and insulin is effectively looking or working as a nutrient sensor or an energy sensor in this case so if you're sent it's a body's talent or your body you were eating stuff that's allowing your body to tell the rest of your body that 
yeah, there's food available, you know, growing is probably a good idea right now. You know, that's, that's obviously what we want. And in terms of thinking of this kind of a little bit out there, first of all, uh, carbohydrates are going to give you the, the best bang for your buck in terms of your performance in the gym day to day, right? For the vast majority of people, depending on, obviously it depends on what you're doing, but for the vast majority of people, if we're talking about gaining muscle, you know, you're going to be tapping into that kind of glycogen uh, stuff uh, as you are training, more so than the, the fat stores, purely because that's, that's you know, the, the energetics of muscle contraction, right? So carbohydrates are going to give you the most bang for your buck in terms of your performance in the gym, especially if you're doing kind of, we'll say the 12 ish rep range, you know, you're kind of pumping up those, those reps. And again, an effort to increase overall volume, like you're just going to be tapping into those stores a little bit more, you know, maybe like I know some people do it like, Oh, well, I need all my carbohydrates for performance. And they're doing like three reps, you know, it's like, like, yeah, obviously it does help, but it's not exact. You're not exactly tapping into, any kind of anaerobic processes that would require this hugely, right? And so, yeah, my vote goes for carbohydrates. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Like, just a couple of points down, I suppose. Like, you can make a very strong argument for it being potentially like beneficial for muscle building and performance. We've actually discussed that like quite a bit. In like, if you go into the nutrition articles, you can read about the carbohydrate stuff, and also in the training articles and the exercise physiology. We've touched on some of the like the more physiological concepts as it relates to like nutrition and resistance training. So I, you can you can read more about that there. But essentially, you can make an argument that it could potentially improve performance um, and or recovery, which may or may not be important depending on the, on the situation. For example, if you're if you also play a sport um, while trying to gain muscle, it's probably important to have a higher carbohydrate intake in general. Um, and then you can also make the the argument that it could potentially lead to less fat gain as in like there there are some studies at least in the short term where when you overfeed with carbohydrates versus overfeeding with fat you tend to see less less fat gain um for whatever reason could be the case that they're just initially storing the glycogen that it causes increases in performance or whatever whatever the reason is but there are so, so there is some research research on that the other thing i think is more of a practical concern in that from what i've from what i've observed in people who have preferred a higher fat approach what they tend to what tends to happen sometimes is when you have a high calorie intake and a high fat goal while also having let's say moderate carbohydrates you can actually eat pretty much whatever you want while satisfying your macronutrients in that it's very easy to just be like oh i've got whatever 40 grams of fat left and 100 grams of carbs so i'm going to go and get like a double cheeseburger and a dairy milk you know so sometimes that is what happens is that because there's there's essentially no constraint on any one macronutrient people can sometimes make uh, potentially worse food choices which which in in small quantities not a problem but when they're in larger quantities um especially when in a calorie surplus um that might be ideal okay so food food quality does matter for sure um so yeah you can make the argument both practically and theoretically that increasing carbohydrates is probably a better idea 100% also like I know people it's somewhat transient and I know, know people like to make a deal out of stuff that isn't necessarily true but speaking from a scientific point of view the carbohydrates are going to give you more of a hormonal advantage right in terms of again like they're signaling to 
your body that you have energy available more so than you would if you had fat available or you were eating fat because you get a bigger insulin response and you could make the argument that that's going to increase your testosterone more so than having more fat in the diet. But again, it gets kind of tricky because you need a certain amount of fat for those processes, especially like cholesterol and stuff, even though it can be synthesized um, for those processes to actually take place, which is really like, it's quite funny. Like we were talking about this earlier on Gary and like I was saying that most biochemists are actually retarded. Um, <laughs> but like it is the case because people make these claims that like if you actually understood what was going on like under the hood you would kind of go oh that actually makes a lot of sense like you look at people that are insulin resistant they actually have higher testosterone levels right so people are all like oh you need to get insulin sensitive you need to get insulin sensitive because it's better for your health and to a large extent that's very true right and but if you look at the actual research is like people that are insulin resistant do tend to have higher testosterone levels just if you just compare two populations right and that obviously makes sense because for every carb that they're eating they have to secrete more insulin to get it to knock on the door to get into the cell and again that insulin is signaling to the body that you have energy available or energy available so testosterone goes up you know which is kind of helps to explain why testosterone generally tends to go down as you get into those really lean levels of body fat you know but again this this all has to be taken in the context of you're looking at people that are overweight if they lose fat generally their testosterone is going to go up you know but if we're talking about someone in this kind of healthy range this kind of we'll say eight to 16 ish percent for for guys you know if you're at the higher end of that, generally your testosterone is going to be a little bit higher, you know, which is something that we kind of intuitively don't think makes sense. But also you have to couch it in the terms of like if stuff is able to get into your cells more easily in general, that means that your testosterone itself is that is circulating in your body is going to be more effective. So even if there's a lower total magnitude, it is more effective because it's actually able to get where it needs to go so like if you're looking into any of this kind of hormonal advantage from oh should i choose fats or should i choose carbohydrates all of that stuff is just way more tricky than you initially think it would be you know so there's that yeah and then i suppose like the only the only final thing that's worth considering which is which is something in that article we i mentioned that you basically kind of add on at the end because it's a useful reinforcing point but it shouldn't be the first step you take is that when you look at like the research that has been carried out on the most successful bodybuilders who tend to win shows and do the best and have the most muscle and they're that are leanest, they tend to consume more carbohydrates throughout their dieting phases than anyone else um, and in their off season. So it is what it is. It's not hard evidence, but when we add it to everything else we discussed, I'm like, yeah, well, that's definitely a worthwhile talking point, you know, because we don't see... We don't see all of these people who, are, who have really high-fat, low-carbohydrate diets doing quite as successful. But again, there's an element of path dependence there in that like, everyone has recommended carbohydrates for quite a while. But take that for what it is in the context of everything else we said. It's, it's also really hard to interpret the research, like you were saying earlier on, about like, oh, people who consume more carbohydrates versus people who consume more fats in the diet. You know, They're like, oh, the people that were consuming the fats gained more body fat. But you have to take into account that you know, the 
the type of fat they eat does matter because yeah. fats have somewhere between like ca- calorie wise seven to 11 calories per gram, you know, depending on the type of fat you eat. So yeah. and, uh, whereas carbohydrates, if I remember correctly, is like three to five. I don't yeah. quote me on that, but I think that's roughly where it's at. So like you could have a case where I think about that. There's one in the difference because we, we count carbs as four calories. So there's one in the difference either side of that. Right. Whereas with fats, there's two in the difference. Right. So you could be consuming a diet that even though you think it's equated for calories, it's not actually, you know, if the the fatty acids that you are choosing are actually 11 calories, you know, or the majority of them, you know, you're actually consuming more calories than you think you are consuming. So that again, like it's really hard to really get into the nitty gritty of this, the research, because there's so much under the hood of that kind of calories in calories out argument that people just kind of go, Oh yeah, it didn't work for me. So see you later. You know, but yeah, basically carbs, that's what wins in my opinion. Once you're getting 0.6 to one gram per kilo, then you're good to go for fats. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, sir. Like you could probably add on the additional caveat that like if someone was, let's say overweight and insulin resistant, you might want a lower carb approach, but again, you wouldn't be gaining weight in that context anyway. So it's kind of a, also a people people say that all the time, but I also don't think that that is a good strategy long term because, like we know, higher fat diets make you more insulin resistant. So, like that's that's not going to like it may help them transiently, but it also doesn't set them up long term for what you actually want to achieve. But that's again, it comes down to this kind of like we'll call it nutritional periodization, where you're kind of like, yeah. okay, well, where are we right now? let's make the correct decisions based on that rather than just going like, Oh, well, here's the, the overview thing. This applies to everyone a hundred percent of the time. It's like, no, okay. You use that as an overview and then you start dialing it in specifically to the population, you know, and then you start dialing in specifically individually. Yes, sir. That was, was, these are comprehensive. Right. This is this is a shorter one. Um, running my first five kilometer race this weekend. Any nutritional strategies I should be considering to optimize performance? And um, so, first things first. The thing to consider in this case is that five kilometers, although it may seem like it's a it's an intensive endeavor for you at this point in time, from like an energy system or energy demand perspective, it's not that demanding. In that, like you do, you wouldn't have to consider like a massive carbohydrate load in the days before for something like that so like from my perspective there wouldn't be anything massively that i change other than the basic recommendations that i probably give to someone who is just doing resistance training anyway and that like if you're coming up to the race you know having a having enough carbohydrates in the day before and potentially not training lower body would be a good idea and then ensuring the next day that you're getting in carbohydrates before your race um as part as part of a, a complete meal getting your protein as well probably two hours before the race in and around there different people have different preferences but generally when it comes to doing any sort of performance event i always recommend people to stick with foods you know work for you you know because i've had that experience in the past where people have been like oh you know all the all the other runners they use like these energy bars so i'm going to try those and then you just feel like crap after them because you've never tried them before same with things like liquid carbohydrates never consume something before or after a performance event before or during a performance event that you haven't had before so they'd be the main considerations from my perspective like other than that like you you can obviously consider like 
supplementation or even just having a coffee like that can that can help as well it can help endurance performance caffeine is useful like for a 5k and you're just doing your first one i wouldn't be looking much further than that really um from a nutrition perspective what do you think only on top of that i would say just make sure that you are eating at least at maintenance yeah yeah or in a surplus in the lead up to it like don't be trying to do which is what a lot of people do when they're like, oh, I'm going to go couch to 5K. And it's like they're, they're even at this severe deficit. They're like, yeah, I've been losing yeah. a kilo per week the whole time. And there's someone that weighs like 70 kilos. You're like, okay, you're in, like, you're in a massive deficit here, you know? Um, so if you are trying to have your best performance, you want to be at least eating maintenance calories so that you are, and again, at least eating maintenance for the week to two weeks before the event potentially even in a surplus in the week to two weeks before the event you know obviously that has to be framed in terms of like running is generally a a sport that favors lower body weights so if you are overweight you know maybe being two kilos lighter because you have spent the last two kilos in a deficit is going to be an advantage for you you know you obviously have to to weigh out the pros and cons for that but as a general if i was talking to anyone is in a general capacity i would say at least maintenance calories for the week to two weeks beforehand which should keep you within a kilo of the low body weight you wear at if you were losing body fat up until that point and the only thing that's being stored is muscle glycogen and water which is only going to help your performance you know yeah, that's actually, you mentioned a point there about like, you know, the whole where your calories at are at and stuff. And I think that's something that a lot of people who lift weights, they they miss about running in that like most people take up some sort of running as a means of burning more calories. Like a lot of people that lift, they tend to do that. They're like, oh, I want to do more cardio, somewhere's coming up. So I'm reducing my calories and I'm going to add in loads of running. And then they find it to be a horrible experience because they're like, oh no, I was too tired, too fatigued, couldn't recover from lower body training but they look at it differently to how they would look at their weight training in that they would expect performance to decrease. Like a lot of people do, we generally don't, but a lot of people would expect performance to decrease to some degree and training to be a little bit more burdensome if you're in a large calorie deficit, let's say. But when they look at the, they don't, they don't apply that then to their running or their cardio training. So that's something I would really encourage a lot of people to try is that, you know, when you're in a surplus, when you're at maintenance, when you, when you have the ability to fuel training, Give more cardio or aerobic work or whatever you want to call it, conditioning training, give it a try then because that's when you get better. Like that's ultimately when you're actually fueling performance, you're going to get the best adaptations, you're going to make the best progress. Um, So you should definitely view your conditioning training in a similar way that you view your resistance training. If you don't fuel it properly, it's not going to be as enjoyable and you're not going to perform or improve as well. So that's, that's definitely worth considering. Yeah. And like, obviously that's not to say that you can't use cardio to induce a calorie deficit. No. Like that's, that's perfectly fine. But just, you just have to have the right frame of mind or the mindset around it in terms of, you know, you're not, you're not fueling this activity. You're actually getting into a deficit of, of energy because of this activity. So don't expect yourself to have this unreal performance or to notice these unreal adaptations because you're, you're just not feeling it, you know? Like, this is something I really like working with any of the, the kind of GA clients that I have, um, like really pushing well, certain adaptations, kind of more anaerobic, alactic as well, uh, adaptations when we are in a surplus, you know, when we actually have the calories to fuel that, 
you know and I, I know everyone <clears throat> who does ga always wants to do that little bit more and a little bit more but it's like yeah if we're going to do that we're, we're going to fuel that you know so there has to be that trade-off like you can't be doing intense training like especially like intervals is generally what i'm using to induce those adaptations and we can't be doing that if we're in a deficit like for sure we can do that in a deficit but you have to accept that there's going to be this little bit of a trade-off where you're not going to get the most out of these adaptations and you essentially have to accept that you're going to just try to maintain your fitness you know you might get a little bit of an increase because there are some pretty cool mitochondrial adaptations that occur when you are losing fat, like you are kind of upregulating those processes, mitochondrial biogenesis and stuff. So you might notice some really nice adaptations, especially if you're coming from an unfit position to a fitter position. But if you're already fit or generally fit and you're looking to really push the envelope with uh, fitness, like you need to fuel it. Yep. And if you're like listening to Patty and you're like, what? lower energy mitochondrial biogenesis blah 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 again go back to those exercises exercise physiology articles part three of applied energy systems endurance physiology it's covered there in terms of like how diet and physiology interact there so again we also we covered that, it on that podcast we did on energy systems as well yeah you know, if you go back and listen i think there's two of them if you go back and listen yeah. to those like it, it does explain a lot and you can kind of start getting the thought process around that kind of stuff yeah, so the information's there. Go check it out. Um, so I think that covers that question. And the next part is our high, re- or the next question rather, are high repetition sets, example, 15 to 20 reps, effective for building muscle? So in general, yes, um, they are effective. Like one of the things you see in the research is that you can essentially build muscle with more or less any, re- any repetition range. That doesn't mean that it's all qualitatively the same. And it doesn't mean that it's all as practically useful. And what I mean by that is that, you know, most of the time people consider the hypertrophy rep range, you know, and there is, there is technically like a a range that is probably most useful for hypertrophy most of the time. It's probably somewhere between six and 15 repetitions, but it's more like a, it's more like a spectrum than it is like a hard cutoff point. In that generally what you see when people perform really low repetitions in like, let's say less than five reps, it's far, people find it far more fatiguing, far more, far more challenging. There might be, it's, it's generally a little bit more uncomfortable. There's more fatigue related to it. And it's potentially um, less, less practical from the perspective of like setting up all the weights, um, potentially less practical on different exercises even. It mightn't be as useful on all exercises. Um, and there was another point I was going to, to say there. Oh, yeah, potentially you could say that there might be um, differences in injury risk when you go to lower repetition ranges because you're, you're using more weight overall and any, let's say, deviation in your technique that could fall, let's say, if you fell to one side, there's more risk associated with that or you're more difficulty racking the bar, whatever. So there's those practical considerations on that end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, there's also considerations. Go ahead. Uh, with that as well like you also have to look at like if you consider it's not one set that we're talking about it's the overall workout and we'll say just for argument's sake we'll say that you need to get 30 effective reps in a workout to induce hypertrophy you know like you could again make that argument to be like all right i'm going to do 10 sets of three but think of like 
10 sets of three versus we'll say five sets of 10. You know, you're getting 50 reps with five sets of 10. But man, it's not nearly as fatiguing as 10 sets of three, you know? And I'm, I'm saying five sets of 10 because when you are in those lower rep ranges, like you're, you're pretty much getting like 100% <laughs> of that muscle fiber activation. Whereas when you're in those kind of higher rep ranges, which is probably what Gary's going to go into now, um, you're not getting full muscle activation from the offset, you know? So we'll say the last five of those reps in that 10 rep set were effective. So if you do five sets of uh, 10, you know, you're getting like 25 proper full activation reps, you know, whereas if you do 10 sets of three, yeah, you're getting 30, uh, but it's a lot harder like neurologically and also not even just neurologically, well, obviously it plays into it, but mentally, like you try going into 10 heavy, heavy sets, you know, that's a lot harder than doing three to five moderately heavy sets that are kind of 10 to 12 reps, you know? Yeah, and like that, that's, that's definitely a worthwhile part of this discussion, the kind of effective reps discussion. Like that's generally one of the reasons like less than five just becomes less practical because even like, let's say you did singles, <laughs> you tried to do 20 singles. It's like, how practical is that? It's like, yeah, those one, the, that one repetition, really potent stimulus probably similar to let's say your eighth rep when you're going to failure at eight but the thing is what if you're doing a set of eight you're also getting good stimulus from the seventh good stimulus from the sixth a bit less from the five not much from the fourth nothing from the three you know so that's kind of essentially the, the way that it works is that the closer you get to failure like the thing is this is what science says now Arnold Schwarzenegger said this it's the reps, <laughs> you know, Bruce Lee, I think, said the same thing. It's like, it's those reps when you're starting to feel the burn and it's getting really hard, they're the ones that count. And it's like, yeah, that's a bit pro science but it's true. You know, they, that is essentially the truth, that they're the reps that count, and those reps where you are closer to failure. That doesn't mean that going to going all the way to failure is necessary, and that's kind of where people kind of mix this up, is that there's, very, there's probably very little difference between like zero reps in reserve and one rep in reserve in terms of the stimulus, but it's very fatiguing to go all the way to maximum failure if you know how to go there, um, which a lot of people don't. Most so, yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Um, essentially, you've got the, those, the, the end of the set is generally going to be the most hypertrophic, if you want to use that word. Um, and that's where we move on to the higher repetition ranges. For the higher repetition ranges, you can indeed gain a lot of muscle. Like if you wanted to do sets of 20, sets of 25, but it's, it's so hard. Like it's really hard as you get to those last reps to really, you know, have the, the cojones to pull, push yourself all the way to that 25th rep up with your true 25 rep max. Really difficult. And in general, all the research supports that, that people report far more discomfort um, on those higher rep sets. Um, even though they are building the same amount of muscle as people using, let's say, the 8 to 12 rep range. So the, the, the short and sweet of it is that you can gain muscle with all repetition ranges. It's probably most practical to use 6 to 15 a lot of the time, but also then the additional caveat is that there might be differences in the specific adaptations that you're actually getting. So obviously, if you're, if you're doing 1 to 5 reps, let's say, that's more specific to maximal strength. So you're practicing that maximal strength. Like if you're trying to improve your 1 rep max, then that's going to be more specific to that. Your one rep max is still technically going to be increasing if you do eight to 12 reps, but it might be, mightn't increase to the same degree. It might even be the case that you've increased your 12 rep max, but your one rep max mightn't have increased or might have decreased, 
because you haven't practiced that skill in a while. So it's important to view strength as a skill. Um, so when you get to those higher repetition ranges, again, like 20, 30 reps, um, there is the potential that some of that hypertrophy could potentially be quote unquote sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Essentially what that means is that there's just some, there's increases in the size of the, the actual muscle content, whether that's not coming from the myofibrillar proteins, which are your actin, your myosin. If you don't know what that is, read the Understanding Muscle Contraction article on our website. Um, so basically what you're getting is you're getting an increase in the muscle size, but it's not necessarily coming from the proteins that are responsible for contraction. That doesn't mean that it's use, it's useless, not at all. It just means that other things are increasing in size. So that's worth considering as well. So potentially different adaptations. Um, and, that, and that's something that's worth considering too, is that you might actually want to periodize repetition ranges over time if there are, or if there are different, um, different adaptations at each level. And also if there's different practical considerations, it can make training really enjoyable to focus a bit more on, let's say, increasing your five rep max for a while and then trying to, you know, increase your 20 rep max for a while. And if there's potential benefit benefits there, I think it's a good idea to do that. Would I, would I recommend someone go and changes, goes and changes all of their repetition ranges to 15 to 20? Probably not. It's, it's practically quite difficult. And like personally, I quite like that that six to 15 repetition range. And I mean, if you're, if you're after the, the burn and you like that feeling, like slow down your repetitions and see how a, a hard set of eight feels. It will feel very similar to a set of 20. And I think that's the other part of this discussion that probably gets lost is that, again, like what sort of repetition are we talking about? Are we talking about like boom, boom, down, up in a bounce? Or are we talking about like three seconds down, pausing for a second, three seconds up? Again, not saying that's better, but it's definitely different. And you know, different, repeti different repetition ranges also have to be considered within the context of different repetition tempos because your muscles still have to produce the energy over that period of time and they're under tension for longer periods of time. So it, again, it's like we touched on in the first question, all of these things change the actual stimulus that's applied. So that all has to be kept in context. Yeah, and I think for the vast majority of people, just getting stronger in the, that 6 to 15 rep range is a good idea. And if you yeah. do want to get potentially some of these adaptations, these benefits of the kind of higher rep ranges, you know, do it on, we'll say to finish, like people like kind of finishers to their workouts. And that's something that I like for especially lower body um doing like a a set of or one set of all out 25 to 30 rep bulgarian split squats or something like that and just really getting as much blood into the muscle as you possibly can and like i like that at the end of the workout because you've already gotten stronger in this kind of 6 to 15 rep range if you've already given the adaptation or you've already given the stimulus to elicit those adaptations and you're effectively just getting as much blood into the muscle at the end of the workout. So maybe you're getting some mitochondrial biogenesis, you know, maybe you're getting some increases in vascularization, but at the very least, you're getting blood into the muscle, which is providing or bringing nutrients to the muscle you've just trained, you know? So at the very least, you're getting some sort of therapeutic benefit from those kind of higher rep ranges and being left with a, a really nice pump at the end of your workout so that you know you've really worked hard in that workout, which is psychologically, that's very beneficial for the continued progress of actually getting to the gym. You know, if you go to the gym and you're like, yeah, I think I worked out, but you didn't really get a pump. You know, there was no real like mind muscle connection. You kind of feel like, did I really do anything in that session? You know, did it really contribute to my growth? Whereas you come out of that session going, oh, Jesus, my legs, they're, 
they're quivering after that. I'm, I'm really feeling that. Like psychologically, those two different states are a lot different. And that's not to say that one is better than the other. Um, and you may find that, you know, you do a, a hard set of 25 reps, you just dust and you're like, no, I hate training now. I'm giving it up, you know, so you obviously have to take that into account. But yeah, I like the, the kind of higher rep stuff at the end of a workout to, to finish a workout just on, on a high note. Um, but the vast majority, and I'm talking 90 plus percent of your work should be in that kind of six to 15 rep range. Yeah, like, I mean, it's pretty much what most like successful bodybuilders do. You know, if we give the example of like uh, Lachlan Gannon, let's say, who I think is, you know, he's he's like a, a marathon runner from Ireland. <laughs> but no, uh, Lach, like, he's an interesting person because he actually puts into, he, he puts into practice and has for a long time a lot of the things that people in, let's say, the evidence-based community will come out and, and say, you know, oh, look at this new research. And, like, I'm all for that. Like, I'm all for us being like, yeah, let's see what the research says. But I also think it's important to for us to not get too detached from practice in that, like, you have to also look at, like, what are people actually doing? Not to say that that is high in the hierarchy of evidence. But, you know, you see a lot of people like Locke who will have periods of time where they work in, like, really high repetition ranges you know doing more overall volume and then he'll have like a strength phase and then he'll have um, a moderate repetition phase and like that's what i've gathered from watching his training over the years he'll have periods of time where he does really slow eccentrics really slow eccentrics and concentrics again it's it's just like you could you could break this down to a simple heuristic of uh vary your training over time <laughs> full stop and you get you'd, you'd essentially get to all of the answers that are in the scientific research now so it's nice to marry those two things um, and and to use that to guide your training to some degree. So, so yeah, there you go. And he's big, so obviously he knows what he's doing. Well, obviously that's all that matters. <laughs> um, next question is uh, different to the to the others, but patellar tendinopathy. Haven't returned to training and have been resting to let it heal for three months. Still have some pain. Any recommendations? So. Essentially, what this means for people who don't know what a patellar tendinopathy is, it's essentially an injury to the tendon or ligament that connects the patella, your kneecap, to your tibial tuberosity, which is that little bumpy little nodule at the yeah. top of your tibia. Well, I, 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 take a, big. I take offense to you saying little because that's <laughs> little. That's problematic. Hadis is like a sword because he had Osgood Schlatters. So. You say had. I have. <laughs> Oscar Slatter's disease as well, I'll have you know. I just like to leave out the disease. No, you can't leave it there. I have to tell people I have a disease. <laughs> I actually have two. I have two diseases. Viking's disease. Viking's disease, yeah. But yeah, go on. Actually, I'm going to go pee while you talk about this. You go ahead. I have nothing to add except for maybe something at the end. Ari. Um... Well, yeah, so like very simply, that's essentially what we're talking about here. We're talking about some sort of insult slash injury to that area of the body, that tendon or ligament, depending on who your anatomy teacher is. You know, it is technically kind of the patellar ligament because essentially what you're looking at is a bone to bone connection between the patella and the tibial tuberosity. But where that essentially comes from, that is essentially the quadriceps tendon. Okay, so that whole quadriceps tendon is running from your quadriceps muscles at the front of the thigh to the patella and then to the tibial tuberosity. So that's what we're talking about here. Um, 
and this isn't an uncommon injury by any means, but one of the things that comes up a lot of the time when we talk about tendinopathy is that people tend to assume that rest is good. Okay, and that's kind of one of the messages we get when it comes to a lot of pain conditions is that, oh, I'll just rest and see how it, how it, how it, how it fares, you know. But that's not what we tend to advise when it comes to tendinopathy. So when it comes to tendinopathy, tendons love load, okay. So generally, one of the kind of primary areas of intervention or treatment when it comes to tendinopathy is going to be progressive loading of some sort. So that might start with, you know, basic, like really light resistance training. It could be something as simple as, you know, a half squat, let's say, um, and eventually getting to, at the end stage, kind of more, let's say, sport-specific stuff if someone was involved in sport or plyometric stuff where, let's say, you're jumping and hopping and you're, you're applying that kind of um, stretch shortening cycle or that kind of explosive plyometric load to the tendon, okay? So it has to really store and release energy because that's one of the things tendons are good at. So that's essentially where we get to at the end point. But tendons really do like load, so it's important to load them even though there might be a little bit of pain. So that's something that tends to deter people. There you, there you go. If you're watching the video, you can see Patty's tubular tuberosity <laughs> and lack of, of gastrocnemius. But <laughs> he may not have calves, but he does have feelings, so I apologize. Um, but anyway, um, so yeah, that is one of the things you're going to experience is that there is probably going to be some pain when you load the tendon there are some ways you can modify that, but I would just say that it's it generally like from even even like from a research perspective, this has been studied, and you don't you're not going to have adverse outcomes just because you load the tendon with some pain. In general, like I I don't really like pain scales that much, but if I had to give someone advice, I would say, firstly, load as tolerated. Secondly, like if you want a more specific number that works better for you, like three to four out of ten, ten being the worst pain you could possibly experience is what a lot of people advise. You know, there's differing perspectives on the use of pain scales. I don't think they're that useful, um, but take it for what you will. This is generalized podcast stuff. Um, so yeah, you do need to load it. There might be a little bit of pain and that is okay. And generally what you're looking for is some degree of quadriceps loading. So you're trying to load the knee, um, which could be something like, like it, it depends on what you were doing in the past. Like if you're, if you're coming from this from a resistance training perspective, then exercises like leg extensions, squat variations, leg press variations can all be useful. Um, generally, I, I quite like leg, or leg extensions just because, or knee extensions, whatever you want to call them, just because like you know what you're doing, you know, as in it's, it's, there, there is nothing else that can move that load except for your quad. <laughs> so I quite like that from a specificity perspective. And also because generally in the presence of, of pain, it can be nice to know that you have a lot of control over the exercise. You know, let's say if, if you're doing a barbell squat and you get down to the bottom and let's say you happen to like freak out and shift to one side, you don't want to have that risk of, let's say, the barbell falling off your back. Just thinking big picture here. So a leg extension can be nice. Squat variations can still be quite good but you may need to, let's say, adjust the load initially. You could start off with, let's say, 50% of the weight that you would normally use, control the tempo a little bit more, work, you know, three to four reps from failure and start there and kind of build up, your, build up over time as tolerated. The reason I say um, control the tempo a bit more is because generally, generally tendons, as, as we discussed a minute ago, they tend to be responsible for that kind of, you know, energy storage and release. So what you might find is that if you abruptly come to the bottom and you 
you kind of spike up out of the hole, you know, when people kind of dive bomb their squats, you might find that you get a bit of pain there. But if, you, if you're able to control it a little bit more, control the change of direction, you might find that that actually allows you to train quite effectively. So again, it can be useful training modification. But yeah, essentially what we're saying is that apply some load as tolerated, start with a small dose, try and progress it over time. Don't be afraid if there's a little bit of pain and just recognize that load is actually advisable here and that you don't actually have to wait for anything to quote unquote heal. Okay. Because one of the things we tend to see in tendon research is that sometimes what you actually see in, in quote unquote pathological tendons is that they actually have more healthy tissue despite having some tissue that has pathological changes. So it's not, it's not about letting something heal. It's about you building up your capacity for load again. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's most of what you need to know. Yeah. And as someone who has had essentially patellar tendinopathy, like the thing that I found most beneficial was slowly loading that squat pattern, but with a lot of forward knee tracking, you know, basically using a very, very controlled eccentric and concentric. Like I, I essentially just did it on a slant board. You know, yeah. and really got that patella tendon to stretch under load and just control that movement. Now, obviously, you have to slowly progress that. Like, you don't just go, oh, I'm going to go for a slant board squat here and I'm going to load up my max squat as well. You know, like, that's obviously not what we're talking about. But, like, I found that very beneficial to – this is actually how I started really to begin thinking about, like, exercise mechanics more than just, like, oh, squat for big legs. Um mm-hmm. Like I was like, well, why does my knee hurt? Like I, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so doing that on a slant board, getting a lot of forward knee movement so that the patella tendon is in that kind of stretched position and just slowly loading that up. So something like a, a slant board squat, like a goblet squat, probably be easier to, to load than trying to do with a barbell as well. And just slowly, you could even do single leg and not go like the full, full way down, like get kind of a, a little bit of a Peterson step up type deal going on so you're getting that kind of terminal knee extension and um, but that that may, may not as beneficial for this person here but i did find getting that stretch position slowly progressing that under load that resulted in the quickest reduction of pain and the quickest reintroduction of function um, so yeah i completely endorse getting that knee forward and progressing it, getting stronger there. Yeah. And like, like basically what you said is essentially what a lot of physios try to do. Like that kind of slant board incline squat is like one of the, one of the things that some people use as like a diagnostic tool in that, like you want to find out if someone has a patellar tendinopathy, put them on that, see how it feels. Is the, is the pain like specific to that area? And because like you said, there's so much load in that area, you tend to find that people will, their symptoms will be reproduced there. And also it's kind of one of the exercises that people use as a gold standard in that like, oh, we want to get you really strong in this inclined squat, which again, like you said, goes back to a lot of the exercise mechanics stuff we talk about and the parallels between rehab and training that a lot of people don't draw in that like, you know, you have, you have physios talking about like, oh, an incline squat for, for patellar tendinopathy and because it loads the knee and it helps to, to get the knee really strong because it's more specific. But then you could also have the same physios who will say, don't let your knees go over your toes, even though they're using it purposefully in that case. So it's interesting to, to think about how those, those things might relate. Um, but yeah, the next part or the next question rather, setting up training. Let's do that one last because it's a longer question. 
Yeah, true. As uh, next question, we've kind of we've probably touched on some points that are relevant to this. But the next question was, can you grow muscle in a calorie deficit? What's the deal? Deficit lose all your gains, or can you gain some muscle? Yeah. So, like when you think of a calorie deficit, like traditionally, what people are thinking of is losing body fat, right? Because that's that's generally what it's couched as. You know, it's like do eat less food, move more, and you'll lose body fat right but it kind of most people just kind of forget the discussion around what happens to your muscle unless you're actually in the the health and fitness world and you actually you know care about your resistance training you know you're maybe a bodybuilder or whatever but in terms of the general population the wider population most people just look at a calorie deficit and look at like is my scale weight going down right like they actually don't really care if their muscle mass is going down right that's the vast majority of people like if you ask your your mother, your father, your granny, your granddad, or whatever, like, if you eat less, what happens? They're like, oh, yeah, your scale weight goes down. Like, they, they, they have no concept of, like, muscle mass. They just basically think of it in terms of your scale weight going down if you're in a calorie deficit, right? But once you start getting into this kind of stuff, you start reading more and start going, okay, actually, wait, preservation of muscle mass while dieting is a, a pretty good idea in terms of health but also in terms of the aesthetic qualities of your physique that you're, you're probably trying to present by dieting, you know, like you want to look jacked on the beach or whatever, you know? Um, so that discussion starts a further discussion of, okay, well, I'm starting in this position. I'm kind of skinny fat. You know, I, I don't have a huge amount of muscle and I have fat to lose. So can I grow muscle in a deficit? So you may be coming to it from that perspective as a beginner. And then you may be also coming to it from the perspective of, I really like my training, but I also have a, a summer holiday coming up or whatever. And I wouldn't mind being leaner for it, you know? So we have the, the person who is a beginner. And then we also have the person that's maybe intermediate to even advanced, right? So for the beginner, oh, fuck yeah, you can grow muscle in a deficit easy no problem at all like just training itself you know it's a potent anabolic stimulus so potent that you're just going to be able to grow muscle it's not going to be an issue for you right you know now is it optimal to be in a deficit and trying to build muscle no probably not actually definitely not (laughs) you know as a beginner right now basically as a beginner anything will work so this this question it's, it's kind of irrelevant you know like as long as you're not in I don't know, 2000 calorie deficit, like a ridiculous deficit. It kind of doesn't matter. Now, if you're intermediate or advanced, growing muscle in a deficit, certainly possible. Is it likely? Not really. You know, that's not to say that, you know, you can't do it. And this is especially true if you effectively make yourself a beginner. And what I mean by that is, you know, maybe you've been doing a lot of chest work, a lot of back work, a lot of leg work, and then you start dieting and you notice, oh, my shoulders aren't actually as big as I thought they were. So I'm going to do a lot more lateral raises, for example. I'm just going to add them into my program. And you're effectively a beginner shoulder trainee. Yeah. You know, Is it more likely that you're going to grow muscle in those areas? Yeah, it's more likely because you haven't trained them before. so there's a bigger potential there for growth, right? But if you've set your training up 
so that you're basically hitting all muscle groups effectively throughout your let's say off season or your gaining phase uh, muscle growth while dieting not really likely you may get a small amount of muscle growth especially if you're like kind of intermediate you know maybe a couple of hundred grams here and there you know something noticeable but not like physique changing um but it's just way less likely than if you were a beginner and this again comes to the conversation of people trying to do this kind of body recomposition it's 100 percent possible you know where you basically lose fat and you gain muscle it's just the least time effective way of going about things you know unless you are a beginner now that's that's the kind of intermediate person if you're advanced you're probably not going to gain any muscle if you're dieting you know you're just you're just not unfortunately you know again you might be in the case of the intermediate where you're kind of like oh actually you know i haven't paid as much attention to my rear delts i wouldn't mind just dialing a little bit of uh we're putting a little bit of attention onto those and then you get a small bit of growth but if you're kind of more advanced you know you probably <clears throat> kind of maxed out your muscle growth or maybe you have a, a couple more kilos in you but you're not really going to grow that in a deficit now this is all assuming that you have been doing most things right all along you know yeah. if you are eating a low protein diet and yeah you're in a surplus and then you go ah oh, fuck it actually i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna start dieting and all of a sudden you reach this adequate or more protein in your diet is growth more likely even if you're advanced yeah a hundred percent you know you're actually giving another stimulus that you have been holding out on you know you're, the pro protein itself is a, a stimulus and um, yeah, it's more likely then. But again, if you're doing everything pretty much right and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm going to start dieting, can I grow muscle in a deficit for a beginner? Yeah. Intermediate? Yeah. Just unlikely. Advanced? Yeah. Just really unlikely. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things that, that happens a lot of the time when people report this is that they are coming from a position where they had lots of unchecked boxes. And this is especially true of kind of like the more the people you tend to see on Instagram who have like a, a yearly transformation because a lot of the, the people that you look at there, like we talked about this, especially in relation to some, some females in particular, it's kind of like you're either on or you're off. As in like the only time you kind of train and manage your nutrition is when you're trying to lose weight. That's, a, that's one of the, the problems a lot of people kind of run into is that they, they only ever really tick all the boxes when they're dieting. And otherwise, it's just like, yeah, I'll just kind of do whatever because like, it's, it's only about getting lean anyway. So there you go. And so that happens a lot of people. The bodybuilders in their off-season are actually particularly guilty of this as well. Like they'll go into their off-season and what they'll do is they'll like turn themselves into like pseudo powerlifters <laughs> where they just do like squat bench deadlift and they just kind of they're a bit lackadaisy about when they eat. They just kind of eat whatever. I'm just bulking. Like all that matters is the scales go up. Um, they potentially go out more, uh, more alcohol, which is, you know, a catabolic. Um, you, you go out more and lose sleep. Again, catabolic. So you, you, add it, you essentially take away all the things that you were doing well. And then when you get back into your, defi to your deficit, your dieting, it's like 100% focus. Sleeping enough, not drinking anymore, making better food choices, eating more protein, etc. Training more like someone who's trying to build muscle, and you can have hypertrophy in that case. So that's worth considering when you see those reports. Um, and I suppose on the other side of that coin, then 
a lot of people say that it's just impossible, that it's all about being in a calorie surplus. And some of that comes from um, a good place in a sense, in that like you can actually go into the research and read some studies where people lose muscle, lean mass is essentially what they're looking at, lean body mass. And you can interpret that as being like pure muscle loss. Whereas what you might actually be seeing is reductions in water weight that come with dieting, reductions in muscle glycogen, or redu reductions in the non-fat component of adipose tissue, because that also adds up. So if you, if you get a DEXA scan and you've lost body fat, by virtue of losing body fat, you are going to have less lean body mass. So you can't just interpret that as being muscle loss. So that's one of the reasons some people overestimate this. But there's plenty of studies that show people gaining muscle in a deficit, even as high as like a 40% calorie deficit, which is pretty large. You know, that's, that's a pretty significant deficit. Um, and people still tend to gain muscle once you are resistance training and eating a high protein diet. So, so yeah, possible, but less possible and suboptimal when you are at the more advanced stage for sure. Yeah, it's also a real weird one because like there are really weird situations where, you know, you put such a demand on your body that you have to build muscle and effectively tap into any energy source. Like there's that guy, the I think it's the Iron Cowboy. He ran like fucking 50 marathons in 50 days or some, some fucking crazy shit like that. Anyway, he got his body fat and DEXA and all that kind of shit done. And like he got down to like 4% body fat by the end of it all, right? You know, he'd literally eaten through all of his body fat stores. But his lean mass went up, you know, because he was putting himself under such a demand from running for so so much like he was like my legs got jacked you know um, but this also then comes to the, the the or answers the question is like oh can you build muscle from cardio and it's like yeah you can it's just again it goes back to that kind of effective reps that we were talking about you know to get the effective reps from cardio you're probably going to have to fucking run multiple multiple marathons <laughs> you know um so that you can build muscle in a deficit it's just highly unlikely Yes, sir. And then finally, probably one of the longer questions, but setting up training for females, what should be considered? The context of this question was kind of like, like if you want to add the additional context, general population clients um, with generalist goals. And that was asked on Instagram, I believe. But yeah, there you go. I actually don't think there's a huge difference in terms of how you would set it up for males and females in terms of overall volume. like. Some females, like I hate generalizing this kind of stuff because some females seem to be able to handle way more volume. Yeah. That could be a function of them being weaker because that's generally what you'll find for everyone. Like if you're weaker, you're able to handle more volume. Whereas if you're stronger, you're able to handle less volume, which is kind of counterintuitive to what you might think being like, well, I got stronger, so I have to do more volume to keep progressing. It's like, no, like you do a heavy set of squats, you know, four heavy sets of squats. Like that might be enough for you to continue growing, you know, because you are so far advanced. Like you're doing four sets of eight, 200 kilo squats. It's like, that's, that's a pretty big trigger to, uh, for your body to grow, you know, whereas, uh, four sets of eight squats at 80 kilos is yeah, a trigger to grow, but it's not as metabolically or neurologically disrupting as the 200 kilos, you know? So generally you will find women tend to, be able to handle a little bit more volume that doesn't mean you have to give them more volume but other than that the only things that are going to really change in terms of training the female is 
maybe putting more emphasis on the glutes. Again, we're obviously generalizing here, but yeah. more emphasis on the glutes because that's generally what they want. Maybe a little bit less emphasis on the, the quads because some females don't like having bigger quads. Some do, you know, yourself. Um, maybe putting a little bit less emphasis on the chest and a bit more on the shoulders. But then again, some females don't like that kind of more, we'll say, quote unquote, masculine uh, shoulder look, you know? And other than that, generally people say like, oh, you should focus more on the, the upper fibers of the chest, you know, the clavicular portion of the chest uh, if you're training females. But even that, I'm kind of like, oh, like I, I don't know if it makes this huge difference. Like, yes, we do want to potentially bias that, especially if you are a female who wants to compete. Because generally what you'll see is, well, first of all, they pretty much all have fake boobs. So if you're going to compete, that, that's almost a mandatory. Uh, it is what it is. That's the sport. But also what you'll see is they tend to have the, the upper ribs showing. Um, and that, depending on the federation, depending on who you're, you're, you're competing with, like that kind of gets marked down a little bit because they want to see some muscularity of the upper chest. And also generally women don't want to see their ribs poking through their upper chest. You know, it doesn't allow them to wear tops like that would have like, you know, a a bigger loop in the neck, you know? So you could, you could argue that training the upper chest a little bit more is going to be beneficial for females. But then I also just think I'm like, man, if you train in any way effectively for the, the pec major as a whole, like you're going to stimulate the upper fibers, you know, like you do a bench press and like you have an arch, you know, you're basically getting as much fiber recruitment as you could possibly want, you know? So for, I just, I just don't think there's a huge difference in terms of how you would set training up for a male or a female, apart from maybe choosing different exercises, maybe choosing more glute focused exercises. But in terms of volume, that kind of stuff, I'm like, it comes down to that kind of individualized experience you know like maybe you do more volume for the glutes because that's what you want to really focus on but also i just think a lot of people just do a lot of junk volume just for the sake of doing it like oh i got a really good glute pump like as we said earlier on it's like yeah like that might contribute this small amount to growth or the overall training experience but like is it making a huge difference probably not like getting stronger in a, a glute bridge a hip thrust a squat a deadlift like that's going to grow your glutes. You don't need to be, to be doing like 20 sets of glute kickbacks to get this mild pump that lasts, yeah, half an hour, but then you don't get any actual growth, you know? Yes, sir. And I think like, I think in the actual question, again, like one of the caveats that was added was like, should we consider anything about the menstrual cycle? And like, obviously like you've written about that on site. And I think like there, there's theoretical arguments to be made for sure. But I think, some of them can can wash out in the real world in that like if someone was just signing up with us for coaching i'd much rather see someone get consistent with training and do something consistently over time than to have them worrying about periodizing their volume based on their period period isaac there you go that comes up every time we talk about this it's awful no you did this in your article, so I'm like, no, okay. That, that was funny when I did it. It's not funny when you did it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, on essentially, yeah. Well, on that stuff as well, like periodizing the training around the menstrual cycle. Like, yes, you could argue theoretically, and I actually think there is research to support it. Yeah. You dialing it into your cycle. But again, this just becomes down to an individualized 
training experience then because like most most women like although they we always say oh 28 day cycle it's like most women just don't have that you know so how are you going to periodize your training cycle if your cycle isn't consistent you know like are you just going to be like right we're going to keep training until we know you're a week before your period or whatever it's like this is not practical unless you have a very consistent very regular cycle you know and i would much rather just tweak training as the weeks go like if you know that okay every week before i have my period my performance increases because that happens for some people or maybe your performance decreases you know maybe the week of your cycle or of your period you know you're kind of like oh like i just feel like crap i can't lift heavy i just have no motivation it's like okay well then like i would like to adjust it based on that feedback i don't think you can make generalized recommendations like obviously you can i just don't think they're more effective than just the general generalized recommendations you know yeah and i think i think this is one of the the reasons it's so important to like when you get interested in theory you have to also stay in practice because i remember like the first time reading about all this menstrual cycle stuff being like this is the secret you know this is going to change the way i program for people but then like looking at let's say my current like female clients you know i could think of like most of them don't have this magic 28 day cycle. Like it's, it's like, yeah, that's the average. Like that's the, the thing that, you know, you put down as like, this is the mean, but like, what's the standard deviation there? You know, there's, there's a, there's a couple of, of females who have, you know, like 35 to 40 to 40 day cycles, uh, but that's been through their whole life. And that's essentially their norm at this point in time. So again, it's like, it's like how exactly do you change it for every individual? I'm not sure you can, like there are some, clients of mine who find that god their appetite is just reckless on that week before their period their mood is lower they have you know decrements in training performance and for them more specific advice but again that can then change throughout the year again then because what you what you're obviously going to have is like as you change your energy status whether you're dieting or gaining weight or you're playing sport or whatever that can then affect the menstrual cycle as well and potentially the the hormonal underpinnings that would be the theoretical basis for these changes in training anyway so it's it's really easy when you're looking at a simple graph that you know right they we're probably going to gain more muscle in the first half of the phase than the second half of the phase but once it gets into an individual individual level i would be more concerned with programming based on what client feedback is you know if you feel best for the first three weeks and feel a bit crap on the fourth week i'm happy to have a, a three to one kind of hard training to a little bit lower volume a little bit lower intensity paradigm um, but again that's that's why coaching needs to be to be individual so that's that's most of it i guess yeah like there are there's so many theoretical conclusions you could come to yeah. you know, especially around the cardiovascular stuff and the, the strength yeah. support, the performance stuff like if you're just looking to build muscle and lose fat it basically doesn't matter you know like it, it's kind of irrelevant you know like it's pretty easy to even if you feel like shit you know push out a set of eight you know it's not too neurologically demanding it's not too metabolically demanding like yeah you might notice your strength is a little bit lower but it's still going to be an effective training session overall so i just don't think it matters too much however if you are talking about like sporting performance or you are like a power lifter um or i don't know you're, you're doing a lot of cardio or something then yeah maybe we could argue a bit more that we need to be a bit more on top of things with this stuff because, you know, certain times of the cycle, you're going to be like, yeah, my anaerobic performance is fucking on fire. You know, certain times your aerobic capacity is going to be 
unreal. Certain times, you know, your strength is going to be at an all-time high. You feel great. So you have to kind of take that into account, especially if you are competing, because there's not much you can do if, you know, you notice on your third week, you feel like absolute fucking crap. And that's the week of your competition. You know, so yeah. you're going to have to go into things with that training and then do stuff in your training cycle to try to combat a, combat that in whatever way possible. You know, maybe it is that you need to warm up longer. Maybe it is that you need to get more hyped up. Maybe it is that you need to relax more. You know, you need to kind of iron out these details if you are going to be competing and you are regularly cycling female. The other side of the coin is most people that are competing are not regularly cycling females because they are pushing their bodies really hard, you know? And this is the thing, like we're talking about just the menstrual cycle in general, there's a certain set of recommendations. If we're talking about amenorrhea, especially if it's caused by secondary amenorrhea, especially if it's caused by a lack of energy availability overall, like that's a different conversation we need to have. Like generally you're going to see these people that are absolutely hammering themselves with training and they're on low calories. And effectively it comes down to bringing calories back up to an adequate level and bringing training volume down to an adequate level. You know, if that's the case, then obviously how we set things up is going to be completely different than if we had someone that's like, yeah, I'm generally healthy. But again, this comes down to like, you're effectively a quote unquote diseased population. You know, like that's a specific population if you have amenorrhea, you know, so you have to do this like that specific population. Like you wouldn't just go, this person that had patellar tendinopathy, you wouldn't just be like, all right, here's my general recommendations for a healthy individual with regard to leg training. Just jump into that. You know, like you wouldn't say that. You know, you're like, okay, well, there's some extra considerations we need to have with you as an individual. And that's the same with amenorrhea. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because very often what people do is they extrapolate from populations that you could almost consider to have some sort of pathology and just apply it to everyone. Like another good example is like, reverse dieting you know like we might say to people that oh yeah you know when you're coming out of a a dieting phase um just add calories like slowly you know take your time it's totally fine for me right now let's say that'd be perfectly appropriate advice for someone who's been a competitive bodybuilder and they've gotten down to let's say five six percent body fat probably wouldn't be the best advice because you want to get to a higher level of energy much quicker you want to get to at least maintenance pretty much right away because you are like technically and you can observe this in a lot of bodybuilders it's almost a pathology. You know, you, you are pretty much putting yourself in some sort of pathological state, like psychologically, for sure, for a lot of people, um, and also physiologically, in that your body is in an extreme state and there are very real physiological changes that come with that. So if you then apply that logic of like taking it from, you know, someone who it, it might be a good idea to just add in 100 calories and apply that to the bodybuilder, not a good situation. So again, context definitely matters. 100%, Gary. Anyway, that's all our questions for today. Yep, and we finished, uh, we finished on that kind of menstrual cycle female-specific question. And when we asked for questions, another message that came in was that we need a specific podcast on like the menstrual cycle female stuff. So we will definitely do that, but I think our plan is probably to have a guest and we'll all discuss that. Is that correct? What do you think? Yeah, I'm thinking that myself too. Although we might do an intro episode. An yeah. intro episode cover a lot of shit and then have a guest that'd be good um but yeah uh, do you have anything else to add 
I guess all I'd add really is that like, if you've never heard of the menstrual cycle, you know, a lot of guys are actually, actually even some women as well. Some people are totally ignorant to the fact that there is this cycle and what goes on. And I think like understanding the basics of it is probably useful. You know, even if you're a guy and you're in a relationship with a female, might be worthwhile um, information. It's also kind of a useful conversation starter if you're on a date, like just tell her loads of information about her cycle. I'm sure she'll, I'm sure she'll love that. <laughs> My mom's in the kitchen. She's like, oh yeah, do that. <laughs> yeah, like that's, that's a really good move. Try, try that, she says. Um, but yeah. Um, you can essentially go to our website, read those articles that are on site, and that'll actually put you in a really good position to understand any specific podcast we then do on that topic. So, so yeah, there you go. Um, well, I have nothing else to add except we do still have coaching spaces available, and we do still have obviously because it's unlimited. We do still have eBooks available. Uh, the beginner ebook we're actually working on a few other ones because there is a demand like people have been asking for certain things um and they're easy for us to put out um we're gonna make some like templates for training programs and stuff because like obviously we talk a lot about the theory and training theory nutrition theory and all that kind of stuff but like we're kind of doing with the, the vlogging as well like having the practical application like actually seeing it in practice seeing how these things would actually play out does allow you to understand things to a much greater degree you know because it's all good you basically don't want to go either side of that you don't want to be just all evidential experience or not evidential you don't want to be all just like oh this is my experience this is what i've yes. seen you know it's like you, you don't want that and you also don't want to be the other thing where it's like oh, well, I read this in a book, you know, it's like, you have no real world practicality, you know? So you want to get obviously marry those two things and seeing us do it in, in the vlogs and stuff obviously helps, but then also seeing it in a book, like an ebook format, a template that would be like, this is how we would consider training for this goal or training with this many days available, you know, that kind of stuff, like actually seeing it in a practical manner does help people with their overall understanding of a topic but also it gives them a plan of action so it'll, it'll kind of be for the two people like if you are a coach you are training people having an understanding of okay so this is how i would set up training if a person came to me and they had x goal you know or it's also for or sorry and it's also for the individual that's like i want to train three days per week that's all i have available to me this is my goal you know, where would we start that person? You know, that's, that's what we want to kind of provide with all those books. But at the moment we do have the beginner's ebook. And as we said before, even though it's called the beginner's ebook, it's not necessarily just for beginners. It's also for people that are more advanced because again, most people come to this stuff and they learn bits and pieces mainly from social media these days. And they don't actually ever get a I'll say proper education. I wouldn't even say the ebook is a proper education, but they don't ever get a sequential education. Like they don't actually understand the underlying principles. They don't understand the, the orders of importance. They don't get, you know, the basics. So even if you are more advanced, you know, reading the ebook, the beginner's ebook does really help solidify the thoughts that you've had, you know? And it also obviously helps you if you are training beginners, you know, so you can kind of go, oh, okay, so, that's how I would set things up, you know? Anyway, Gary, do you have anything else to add? <clears throat> um, if you're trying to keep up with all this stuff and you're not 
you know, on Instagram every day, scrolling through the triage method page, it's highly recommended that you sign up to our email list. We won't send you any spam, one email per week, just letting you know everything we've shared so you can catch it up, catch up on it with your Sunday morning coffee. And also like any additional resources we found across the internet or books or whatever that we think might be useful or of interest, we'll add those in there as well. And then all those will be on site as well. So, you know, keep you also, up. You also get a 10% discount in store. Yeah. If you sign up to the email list, um, which is quite nice. Well, I think it's quite nice, but maybe I'm biased. Yep. There you go. And yeah, I have nothing else to add except Gary, you're supposed to start blogging now, aren't you? Yeah, so I'll have a video blog up this week as well. You saw and video blogs. It's so like 1990s. I know. I keep doing it like deliberately though because I'm like, oh, I don't want to be like, hey, look at my blog. <laughs> so I'm just going to, I just going to, I just want to remind people that that's actually what it stands for. So my video blog. It's uh, but yeah, subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll have that up there. And, you know, not just vlogs, we're also going to be doing some additional kind of more specific topics that we'll cover there because essentially we just want to have a diverse range of sources that you guys can check out, audio, video, text, and choose your preference. Yeah, because that's kind of what we want to provide over the next while is, like, I understand, like, I know I like reading. I know you like reading, Gary, but I also know that a lot of people don't like reading. So I want to be able to help as many people as possible. So that's what we're going to start doing with the YouTube channel as well. So if you want to subscribe, subscribe. Um, putting out more kind of content in terms of answering questions in a video format, you know? So like Gary was saying earlier on, we're kind of moving off Instagram. Well, I basically don't really use Instagram except to look at memes. Um, but Gary's kind of moving off Instagram or kind of just get, excuse me, get questions maybe from Instagram, maybe from the online form, whatever email even and then answer them in an actual video because that's able to help way more people than just an instagram dm and while we obviously do want to help as many individual people as possible as we said before at the start of this episode like answering a question to you in a dm and going into the nitty-gritty is great love helping individuals but also that information could probably have helped 20 30 50 100 200 500 people you know and it's effectively lost to that one person, you know? Yeah. And that obviously does help that one person. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do. But it makes more sense from our larger goal, our larger kind of picture, our ethos, or whatever you want to call it, of helping as many people as possible to actually put that content out in a, an easy-to-understand and consume uh, format, you know? Yes, sir. Anyway, I'm not and that's it. Not. It's too easy. It literally is. <laughs>